Welcome to The Weekender, Montana's half-hour news hour. It's a new podcast from Yellowstone Public Radio. Think of it like an audio alt-weekly that drops every other Friday. I'm your host, Nikki Ouellette. Each week, we chat with a journalist to hear how they went about reporting the biggest news in the state. This week, we're with the Billings Gazette's Tom Ludy to talk about what's in place to help the people in town of Colstrip move forward as part of the coal power plant there faces shutdown later this year. For a shot of arts and culture, we head to Brockles Chocolates to taste fresh marshmallow. And in local news this week, we spend some time with the outgoing Miss Crow Nation. Our front page guest this week is Tom Ludy. He's the agriculture, energy, and federal politics reporter for the Billings Gazette. Tom has been covering the community and power plants in Coal Strip for years, and lately he's been reporting on how energy economics and policy changes in other states are starting to shift things here in Montana. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Earlier this summer, Talon Energy, which is one of the owners of the Colstrip Power Plant, announced that it's going to close down two of the units by the end of this year. Colstrip's units one and two, they had been slated to be closed down by 2022. So the announcement this summer that they'd closed down by the end of the year was kind of unexpected. What what do you see as driving that early closure? Well, I, I think the first thing to understand is is that there was never a hard a hard absolute deadline that coal strip units one and two were going to remain operational until twenty twenty two. The the shutdown of units one and two was agreed to to settle an air pollution lawsuit that had been filed uh, against the all of the owners of coal strip and against all four units. And uh, one and two sort of wind up being offered up as, uh, you know, as as the compromise. What happens, and I think probably one of the reasons why this was so surprising for, uh, for for a lot of the, you know, for for a lot of the people sort of watching from the sidelines, was that, uh, you know, prior to the announcement, we'd gone through a legislature where. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the talking points on energy concerned, uh, you know, the importance of coal strip in general and coal strip power. And so there had been a lot of talk in the 2019 legislature about coal power being indispensable and profitable during the coldest weeks of January and February. And uh, there were a lot of people who put faith in those arguments. They they took those arguments as being you know, proof that uh, that these units were um, not going away and that they were, in fact, you know, necessary. And then, of course, uh, we get to the 11th of June. It's just a couple months later. And the announced closure is based on uh, the units being uh, uneconomical. And what Talon said was that the price of coal was too high. And, you know, one of the things to remember is that, uh, you know, Westmoreland Coal, who's their coal provider, they own Rosebud Mine, uh, you know, filed for bankruptcy uh, in October of last year. And one of the reasons they filed for bankruptcy is because they're not getting enough money for their coal to cover their debt. 
So now you have a real problem, right? You have, uh, you know, you have the owners of coal strip looking for cheaper coal. At the same time, uh, you know, you have a, you know, you have a mining company that needs more money for its coal. And, uh, you know, there are some economic challenges there. And uh, as it pertains to units one and two, they wound up being the loser of that argument. This week, you've been reporting that there's a pot of money that's supposed to help soon-to-be-out-of-job coal workers train so that they can have new jobs, but that money isn't being used. What is this grant, and what's the holdup with it? The Power Grant is a federal grant that, you know, that, that's intended to help displaced coal workers, you know, really get into new jobs, right, post-coal jobs. And in 2017, Montana was awarded... Uh, $2 million, just for starts, of, of power grant money to begin uh, retraining displaced coal workers. There's a, there's a bit of a catch in that power grant money requires uh, employers to give their employees notice of, you know, job loss up to 180 days in advance notice of job loss. So if you're a worker and you want retraining, uh, you're supposed to come in and say, I, I need this retraining, and here is what I've been told about my employer, about when my job may be ending. In the case of coal strip units one and two, that notice hasn't happened yet, right? So the announcement that coal strip units one and two would be closing was on the 11th of June. Uh, that 180-day uh, window for the power grants probably would have been about July 5th. And it hasn't happened yet. So the state of Montana has, for the last couple of years, been gearing up for this event, gearing up to help workers transition to uh, new jobs. And because they don't have that notice yet, they, they haven't been able to pull the trigger on that money. I guess that kind of leaves the workers in this catch-22, but also from the company's perspective, it kind of makes sense that you'd want people to stick on at the plant and work through December if that's what you've said that you're trying to do. Well, yes, absolutely so. And, you know, in all fairness to talent, I think one of the things to, you know, remember uh, about, you know, about corporations is that you want workers working until there's no more work to be done. And, and we've certainly seen that um, every few months there's a story about a company that's closing. And a lot of times the employees of those companies uh, are, are caught rather flat-footed, right? They don't know uh, that the company is going away or that their job's going away until, you know, it's going away in a matter of days or maybe even that day. We see examples of that all the time. So what's being asked of Talon is something that's, uh, you know, unusually proactive in the business world, and that is to, uh, you know, give your workers a heads up and sort of accommodate them moving forward with scheduling that allows them to be retrained knowing that while you're noticing them to do that, some of them may leave early. Some of them may choose to go while you still have work to be done. And what we know from Talon, what we've heard from Talon, what they've told the legislature in the last month is that, that what they're trying to do is keep people around, right? They, you know, their turnover has is, is increased about 10%. They do have uh, workers who are retiring early. They do have workers who are leaving for uh, employment in other fields, and they're trying to counter that. They've extended the collective bargaining agreement with, uh, you know, with their unions by three years to, to keep people around. Uh, you know, they're 
their CEO has indicated that, uh, you know, that they've offered uh, incentives to keep people sticking around. And so this is really counter to that. But, but the reality is, uh, you know, Talon has announced that they're going to shut the plant down at the end of the year. And so even as they try to keep people around, they're also going to be losing some people. Right. What the power grant says is recognize that you're losing some people and and let's get them headed down the road into uh, finding jobs in some other field. Does the grant indicate what what those fields might be or, or what I guess what else does the grant entail? Well, what the State Department of Labor has done is they've they've collaborated with uh, Montana AFL-CIO, um, you know, uh, Chief Dolnive College, Miles Community College, Dawson College to create programs that uh, workers can get into. You know, the idea is to, you know, get those workers, um, you know, into other fields as soon as possible. So it's not a, you know, like a four-year degree program. It's probably, uh, you know, max length associate's degree, two-year degree kind of a program. But but they've made some investments. Uh, you know, the Dole Knife Community College has a addiction counseling program that they've worked, you know, that they've set up for coal strip workers who might be interested in that. Uh, Miles Community College has a commercial driver's license program, so a, a truck driver program that they could get into. Dawson Community College has a computer coding program. And these are all sort of being set up to you know, accommodate uh, the flexible work schedules of coal strip workers, right? So that's been going on really since July of last year. Have the workers at coal strip taken advantage of these new programs? Some of it, some of it. According to the Department of Labor, there's about 55 people uh, who've, who've been, you know, sort of enrolled in the program right now. But the program, they don't qualify necessarily for, you know, the power grant part of this program, which is part of the issue, they don't, uh, they, they don't have that pink slip telling them when their job with uh, the power plant might be ending. So they're using uh, federal funding from another program to kind of get that going and to get these people involved. But, uh, you know, to get, you know, sort of get the program geared up for, you know, a larger uh, retraining effort, uh, they, they, don't have the, they don't have what they need to do that. So this, this $2 million grant that you reported on this week, that's funded by taxpayer dollars. Yes. Are there other kinds of programs available to coal strip workers who are looking for workforce retraining? Well, that, that would be the big one right now. That would be the one that sort of specifically targets them. It's unique to them, uh, you know, would be the power, power grant program. What about looking at the community more broadly and transitional grants or funding that's available to help coal strip kind of as a town and community move forward? There is some funding available for that uh, that's non-government money. I, I think that's important to sort of, you know, recognize where that money's coming from. Puget Sound Energy, uh, two years ago in settling their general rate case, agreed to put $10 million on the table to help uh, the community of Coal Strip transition uh, beyond uh, the, the closure of units three and four. Now, you know, there, there has been no announced closure date for units three and four, but there has been, uh, you know, a, a transition community or uh, committee that's been set up to, you know, to decide how to spend that money. And, and that's evolved. Um, you know, they've made their recommendations and, you know, and now they have uh, sort of moved on to, you know, trying to, you know, execute some of that to deal with some of the challenges that, uh, the, the coal strip will face moving forward. Some things as basic as 
you know, how the community will continue to draw water from the Yellowstone River, which is 30 miles away. And right now, they piggyback on the water consumption of, uh, of the power plant. The power plant draws water from the river, and, and a portion of that water is, uh, you know, used to provide, you know, potable water for the town. Um, you know, as the, as the power plant cycles down, the, the town's going to have to pick up that burden fully. You've been covering energy in the greater Billings area for about the past decade. What kind of trends have you seen and, and what does that tee us up for looking into the future? Yeah, it's fascinating, really. You know, I, I think if we walk this back 10 years, um, I, nobody would have guessed that coal's, the coal power would not be the predominant energy source in the United States. It wasn't that long ago that 40% of the electricity generated in the United States came from coal power. And so, you know, that was the, the largest share of, of energy generation in the U.S., and that's declined less than 30%, and, and it's done it in, in relatively short order. And, and the big driver behind that really is uh, natural gas. Um, our known reserves of, of natural gas in the U.S., uh, according to you know, the, the federal government, have, have more than doubled since 2007. And, and that's a product of fracking. And while that's happened in the last 10 years, the other thing that we've seen is we've seen a, a dramatic decline in the cost of um, you know, renewable energy, both wind energy and solar energy, uh, are much uh, you know, cheaper today, much more competitive today uh, you know, than they were 10 years ago. Really, the last 10 months have been you know, a story of uh, coal mining bankruptcies, you know, sort of finally coming to Montana. And really, those problems start to uh, start to show up in Montana's coal economy, you know, really in October and November, uh, you know, with the bankruptcy of, uh, you know, of, of Westmoreland Coal. Westmoreland files for bankruptcy. And uh, that's really Montana's first, uh, you know, first real, you know, real financial challenge, uh, you know, with, with coal mining. I mean, you know, if you look at what's transpired in Wyoming, they went through a wave of coal mine bankruptcies, uh, you know, really back in 2015, right? And, you know, Westmoreland and Cloud Peak Energy, Montana's two big coal mining companies, um, you know, both slipped out of that. They, they were both able to avoid that wave of bankruptcies that took down like Arch Coal and Peabody. Um, but, but that caught up. And, and then I think the other big thing that needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be mentioned because it's significant this year was the Washington state legislature uh, passing a climate change law that requires their utilities to uh, stop using coal power by the end of 2025. And, you know, there are six coal strip owners and three of them do business in Washington state, they'll all be faced with that. So, uh, you know, the, those problems have been there. I shouldn't say problems. Those challenges have been there, uh, you know, for, you know, for coal strip. But, but they always seemed like they were a ways out, right? They seemed like they, you know, 2030 is a ways down the road. 2035 uh, is, is a ways down the road. Uh, December of 2019, not so far away, right? Not so far away. And, uh, you know, that, that's where we're at now. Uh, things are accelerating. 
That makes it sound really dire. But just this week also, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality gave uh, preliminary approval of an expansion at Spring Creek Mine. How does that fit into all of this? Montana has remained, you know, rather supportive of, you know, of the coal economy. Um, you know, I don't think there's been a lot of sort of cheerleading activity, uh, you know, for the coal industry. But, but there's certainly been reliable permitting of coal mines. So there was the recent, you know, movements towards approving the expansion of, of Spring Creek Mine, which is a Cloud Peak mine. But uh, last October, as Westmoreland Coal was declaring bankruptcy, uh, DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality for the state of Montana, was uh, moving forward on permitting an expansion of the Rosebud Mine. So, you know, we, we see that. And, and even if we walked it back, uh, even if we walked it back a few years to, uh, you know, 2016, 2015, uh, Arch Coal, uh, while it was, uh, you know, approaching bankruptcy, uh, was, was in the process of getting the Otter Creek Coal Mine permitted. Uh, in eastern Montana. And as, you know, after uh, Arch withdrew its application, you know, the, the permitting work uh, continued on that mine nonetheless. So, uh, you know, the, the permitting for new mines and mine expansions uh, within state government, uh, you know, has, has continued really fairly reliably, um, you know, d- despite what's going on within the economics of the industry. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Well, thanks for having me. Next up, arts and culture, where we visit one of the gems that make Montana the last best place. This week, I'm with Stella Fong from Flavor Moments and Caitlin Nicholas. Where did you guys go this week? We went to Brockles Chocolate. And why did you choose Brockles? Well, it's been in business for 41 years. It's one of the oldest businesses downtown. And I have been anxious to meet Gary Brockle and his wife, Patty. And his daughter, Jody, was also in the chocolate shop along with his granddaughter, Savannah. Unfortunately, Patty was sick that day. Can you kind of help me picture what does a chocolate shop look like? Oh, this place is like a small chocolate box. You walk in and your eyes cannot even focus on one thing because they have 160 different choices of chocolates. Then out back, it's almost exactly the same thing. They have, you know, the mixers and stainless steel tables. But what is on the walls and refrigerators are just lines of sticky notes that have all the recipes and the hints of making those wonderful chocolates out front. Yeah, the room is just practically bursting at the seams with them. So what did you make the day that you went? Marshmallows. How fun. Let's hear it. You can come back if you want. Marshmallow people usually associate marshmallow with a lot of sweetness. We're going to counteract that with a pure Madagascar vanilla. This took years of experience to figure some of this stuff out, you guys. So this is water and sugar? This is just water and sugar right now, yes. In a very large copper pot. That's right. As the temperature goes up, the size of the bubbles actually change. 234, you guys, so only two more degrees. And the hot mixture is now going into the corn syrup. And you're using the paddle to mix this. 
So you're putting in the, this is the gelatin? This is the gelatin. Okay. Yes. Go ahead and start adding the egg out here. Okay. And now you're putting the egg white in? Yes. Mm -hmm. Here. And within about 10 minutes, it'll be amazing. Yeah, I'm just going to let it whip a little bit on second speed. You'll wonder how we get anything done back here. I mean, I got sticky notes all over. Like, look at here. I've been in here 41 years and I should have moved like 37 years ago. I was afraid to move it somewhere else because we had already established a good clientele. But I never wanted to be big. I never wanted to get to the point where I wasn't the one or my wife or whatever or my daughter weren't the one that weren't making the product. Well, I mean, when you say it isn't big, I do believe it is big because you have about, is it 160 flavors of yeah, candies? Yeah, we do. It's changing texture now. It is. Bring me that vanilla, honey. So folding the vanilla in. Now we're real close, you guys. It's just about done. You better hang around a little while longer, Stella. We're going to make a confectionery genius out of you. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's wow. done, Jody. Okay. Yeah, and the marshmallows are clinging to the paddle. Yes. Almost dripping down. I mean, it almost looks like really thick paint. <laughs> yeah, it's like yes. a pearly white color. And if you look inside there, you can actually see the vanilla bean. Let's taste. Wow. Mm. I love it because it has a great creamy texture to it. You can taste the stickiness, but it is not. Teeth hurting sweet. No, it's not super sweet. It's really creamy. Mm -hmm. And that vanilla is really strong. Yeah, that's what you want. You know, it almost tastes like... I would say warm ice cream in some ways because uh -huh. it has that really super creamy texture yeah. to it. Caitlin, if I was 27, I'd start all over doing the same thing all over again. That's how much I enjoy making the chocolate. Mm -hmm. Gary Brockle owns Brockle's Chocolates in downtown Billings. They're open daily except for Sundays. Stella and Caitlin, what should I order next time I go? Actually, I think we should just ask Gary. I love both the almond buttercrisp and the pecan toffee. I love the savanna, and uh, I love the just the vanilla caramel dipped in chocolate, and uh, the orange cream, which we make with real oranges in that. And let's see, I love, the, I love the I love the Jamaican rum buttercrisp. In local news, the Crow Nation celebrated its biggest event of the year, Crow Fair, a couple weekends ago. Crow Fair marks the start of a new year, but for Anna Bad Bear, it's also the ending of her tenure as Miss Crow Nation. Our reporter Olivia Reingold spent the day with Anna as she waved goodbye to her throne. That cannon means Anna Bad Bear is officially late. She's Miss Crow Nation and is getting ready for her last day of riding in the parade. Ugh, I don't want it to end. <laughs> She's been dreaming of this day since she was four and first rode in the parade all the way in the back. Now, 15 years later, she's at the front, or is supposed to be. Hurry up, you're gonna be late. That's Bad Bear's mom, Melody Reed. Where's your fan in your purse? We're just gonna go, it already started. <laughs> right before she's about to take off on her new horse, Moon, her belt snaps. But even then, Bad Bear doesn't crack. She still has this huge smile as she and Moon race to the front of the parade past kids eating popsicles and parents snapping photos of her on their smartphones. <laughs> By riding in the parade as Miss Crow Nation, Bad Bear is partaking in a long-held crow tradition that predates the first ever crow fair in 1904. 
Former Crow chairman Darren Old Coyote says the tradition of the parade and choosing a virtuous Crow woman to represent the tribe goes back to a time when the Crow were nomadic and hunted buffalo. He says that when the tribe was ready to move camps, the leader would tell everyone to put on their finest clothes. Then he'd pick a young woman to walk with him at the front. A virgin who, because of her purity, would help the tribe find pure water and food at the next camp. Many of those same pressures remain. Old Coyote says Miss Crow Nation has to be a single sober virgin with a high school degree who speaks Absalica, the Crow language. He says she's supposed to be someone everyone respects. Family friend Aldine Goodluck confirms that's exactly who Bad Bear is. It's awesome to see her up there because she's a good dancer and she likes to participate in our traditional and, you know, her culture is important to her, so it's great to see her up there. About an hour after parading, Bad Bear rides back to the campground. It's the same plot of land her family has used every crow fair since the early 1900s. Her mom comes to help Anna get off her horse and take her sash and crown. They're a few pounds each, with beads no bigger than a pinhead spelling Miss Absalica Nation against a golden aqua background. Her crown has the bright orange crow crest hand sewn into it. Did you get to see any of that? Mm-hmm. What um, was that like? Only, um, I only like to see her. <laughs> Reed woke up two hours early to finish Bad Bear's dress this morning. It's long sleeves and cream wool with 500 imitation elk teeth sewn into it. She says the fabric cost $125 a yard and the teeth were $45 for 100. And that's just one of six dresses Reed says she's made for Bad Bear this year. That's all I would do with bead and sleep. Go to work, come back, eat, bead and sleep. That's how she says it's been since Bad Bear was crowned Miss Crow Nation almost a year ago after an intense competition of dancing and tests on crow culture. For the past year, Bad Bear has been representing the tribe at more than a dozen powwows, some as far as Colorado. And between the flights, gas money, and different outfits, Reed says it's been hard financially. And tell me, you were saying how much money do you think has gone into this? Oh my gosh, like 20000 I'm not kidding, it, it's a lot. Reed works as a receptionist at Little Bighorn College and says she lives paycheck to paycheck. That made giveaways hard. That's when an individual or family gives gifts away to say thanks and give acknowledgement. Reed says Crow Fair royalty were expected to do giveaways throughout the year. Like in between paydays, I say, we want all the girls to come over here, they need to give away. And then I panic. Like, what am I gonna let her give away? What do I have left? She said she'd have to go into storage and dig up whatever she had, a blanket or maybe a shawl. So what made it worth it? Her. Her. It's what she wants. And I think it, I think it was a part of that was for me to um, push her to be the best that she could be so she doesn't, you know, wander off. Reed knows her daughter faced pressures to drink and experiment with drugs throughout high school. Bad Bear's father died two months before she was born. She talked about that and more in the speech that helped her win the competition to become Miss Crow Nation. She pulled out her iPhone and read some of it to me. I'm a leader. I overcame diversity growing up and living on the reservation out, living on a reservation and in a single parent household. She says growing up, the girls who won Miss Crow Nation were always role models to her. I don't know, it was just people that I looked up to, that they had expectations, that they had finished high school and they overcame, just overcame a lot of things. <laughs> Anna graduated from Hardin High School this past spring. Now she's bound for Little Bighorn College. Now that you only have a few days left of being Miss Crow Nation, are you like looking forward to a life of dating now? No. <laughs> I want to get my education first and then 
look into something like that. She says she wants to become a cardiologist, and she says if she really wants that, she can't have any distractions. It's on to the next goal. For Yellowstone Public Radio News, I'm Olivia Reingold. You're in You're in Montana. And that's The Weekender. Come back in two weeks for our next episode. I'm Nikki Wallet. Thanks for listening. The Weekender, Montana's half-hour news hour, is produced by Nikki Wallet and Caitlin Nicholas for Yellowstone Public Radio. The music by Caleb Barn. Partial funding for The Weekender is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montana. <laughs>